Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Good evening, church family. Welcome to the 2020 Calvary Chapel Communion Good Friday service. We're so glad that you could join us tonight. It's great to be in the house of the Lord, and we're glad that you're joining us. We're going to have a great night. We're going to get in the Word together. We're going to take communion together. We're going to worship together. And most of all, we're going to commemorate Jesus together tonight. So we're so glad that you're here with us, that you joined us. Right now, we are going to cut over to a pre-recorded worship session for our time together of worship. We'll be worshiping here in the sanctuary. You'll be worshiping at home. And then as soon as that's over, we'll cut right back in and we'll proceed with our service live here tonight. So enjoy the worship and we'll see you in a few minutes. you, Lord, and we thank you so much for this night, Lord, we can come together and learn more of you and just open your word together, and I pray in this brief time, Father, as we're here in your presence, and uh, Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and to do a mighty work in 
I pray that we would, um, Lord, that we would just come before you, that you would search our hearts. Lord, that you would cleanse us. Father, we thank you for that great sacrifice, and we thank you that we can come, and we thank you that we can come and be washed clean. So I pray for each one here, Lord, before we even sing another note, Lord, that you would search our hearts, that you would clean us. We ask for forgiveness, and we thank you. We thank you, Lord. And we pray that um, as we sing, it is a sweet sound to you. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.
Saving me. Thank you, God, for saving me. 
Welcome back. Man, the Lord is so good, isn't he? The word says that he inhabits the praises of his people. And the the room is empty here, but our hearts are so full. Jesus fills us so much, and we're so grateful for it. It it, it certainly is a a lot different of a resurrection season this year. It's not necessarily bad, but it is very much different. Usually, right now, this room is full of people on a good Friday evening ready for communion. I know at home, usually by now, our house is full of people. My in-laws are with us. My father's usually with us. And it's just totally different this year. But it's been kind of sweet at the same time. There is a stillness to it. There's a little bit more of a calm. There's a relaxed nature. And it has been, uh, for, for me, a refreshing time to just really reflect upon what this season is all about. And I pray that the same thing is true for you. One thing I really don't like about it is trying to connect with you through a camera. Uh, you guys are in our hearts. Uh, it's, it, it almost gets a little bit easy to do this with an empty room. Um, the, the nerves seem to be maybe just a little bit less. But then today I started to get text messages from many of you saying that you were looking forward to tuning in tonight. And I felt, oh yeah, that's right. Uh, and that those nerves 
come back. So, but anyways, we're glad to be with you. Um, before we begin, we're going to pray in just a moment. There's a couple of things I want to just remind you of. Our, our Resurrection Sunday service this weekend will be live broadcast from the sanctuary at 9 a.m. That's different from what was on the postcard and what was initially scheduled for the Civic Center, which was 10, but we're doing it at 9 a.m., and we invite you to join with us uh, via video, online, live, or via audio. You can listen in on the bridge uh, the radio station, and you can join us that way if you would. And then also, we are going to take communion tonight. So if you haven't already found some bread or some crackers or some juice, I would ask just get that ready for your family because at the, the end of our service tonight, we are going to take communion tonight to commemorate uh, Good Friday and what we're celebrating here. So uh, if you would, would you just join me as we pray, as we ask Jesus to speak to us tonight, to fill us with his Holy Spirit, and to help us to uh, really let what we're doing sink into our hearts, that it not just be going through the motion. So let's pray together. Father, we uh, come to you tonight, Lord, separated by distance, but united in your spirit. And we just want to ask you right now, Lord, that you would fill each one of us again afresh with your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that you would give us an awareness of your presence. And, Lord, we desperately want to connect with you tonight. We want to uh, feel the weight and the meaning of what it was for you almost 2,000 years ago when you were in the garden and preparing to make the ultimate sacrifice uh, on our behalf that you didn't deserve. And so we ask tonight, Lord, that you would help us, that you would soften our hearts, that you would open them, that you would give us ears to hear your Holy Spirit speak to us tonight. And, and Lord, we just pray right now that if there's anything that's blocking us from you, if there's any uh, uh, unconfessed sin or even just distance that's been created just because of life right now, Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for that, that you would just take it away, Lord. Any sin, anything that we have been doing, Lord, that, that we're struggling with, we pray right now that you would just wash it away in the blood of Jesus. And Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit. We pray, Lord, that you would open up our hearts, that we would really understand, that we would consider, that we would see you, Lord, in a fresh and living way. So uh, we ask, Lord, that your presence would be here, that it would be in our hearts, our homes, with our families tonight, with our kids. We pray, Lord, that you would also be with our church family, extended and abroad, wherever they might be. And we pray, Lord, that you would also be with uh, the citizens of our county, our state, and our nation, Lord, as we go through this uh, crazy time, but we ask you, Lord, that you would please make tonight a sanctified night, that even if, as that first Passover was so holy, Lord, it was such a, an amazing night. We pray, Jesus, that your spirit would make tonight the same. And so would you please hear us tonight, Lord? Would you please help us to enter into your presence? We thank you so much for your glory and your grace, and we commit this service in our hearts and our time to you now, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So my oldest daughter, she's 18 years old, and she's a little bit of an adventurist. And a few weeks ago, she bought a 2014 Kawasaki Ninja motorcycle. That's right. Now, I am glad, part of me is glad that she is fearless, but I am not. So you can pray for me uh, as I teach her how to ride, and ultimately I get to enjoy it with her as I ride alongside of her. But she bought this motorcycle, and the only thing that was wrong with it is that it had a headlight out. And so we had to change a headlight. She couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure it out. And so we did a quick Google search, and we found some instructions as to how to change this headlight. Well, it turns out when Kawasaki designed this motorcycle, they built the bike around the headlight. It is nearly impossible to change. And unfortunately, the instructions in words were not enough. We needed pictures. And so we were able to find someone who provided pictures online, and ultimately we were able to change the headlight. And so where words weren't enough to do justice to the process, the illustrations did. They helped us. And so you say, what does that have to do with Good Friday? Everything, and here's why. Because the Bible tells us the story of the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's on this night that we commemorate and we remember what Jesus did for us in dying on the cross. And so we realize that all of the Old Testament was setting us up for the coming of Jesus, and all of the New Testament 
concerns the testimony of when he came. But all of his coming revolved around that one event when he would go to the cross. I love what Jesus said very shortly before going to the cross when he was starting to feel the weight of what he was about to endure. It's in John chapter 12, verse 27. And he said these words in the presence of his disciples. He said, Now is my soul heavy, and what shall I say? It's John chapter 12, verse 27. Father, deliver me from this hour. He said, No, but it's for this hour that I came. So Jesus even acknowledged that not just his coming was, was the center of the Bible, but the act of going to the cross, that's what the Bible is all about. All of creation revolves around the cross. Now what can happen for those of us that know Jesus and have walked and are walking with Jesus, sometimes the cross can almost become kind of a small part or a subpart of what we believe in. Sometimes it can almost become just a logo that represents the Jesus brand. Oh, a cross? Okay, you must be a Jesus follower. But the cross really is so much more than that. It is everything. But sometimes when you just read the words, you don't gain all of the depth of what the cross really represents. So here's what God did. From the very beginning of the Bible, God illustrated the significance and the weight of the cross by telling stories through the historical events that happened. The prophet Hosea says this. It's Hosea chapter 12, verse 10. God says through the prophet Hosea, it is up there. I was hoping it would be up there too. But he says that I spoke to the prophets and he says that I told stories through them. In other words, God used what was going on in the lives of his people to serve as pictures or illustrations of the cross event that would happen in the life of Christ so that we would know the significance beyond just the words. Because sometimes the words of the story don't tell the whole story concerning what the cross was about. And so what I want to do tonight in our time as we prepare our hearts for communion is I want to share with you some of the snapshots, the, the, the illustrations that God made so that we might really understand what was provided for us on the cross of Calvary. The first picture that God painted really happened in the first part of the Bible at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. The Bible tells us that at the very beginning, it says that the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And it says that he planted two trees there, both the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it says that God placed the man that he had made, Adam, in the garden to dress it and to keep it. And God only gave Adam one command. He said that you are not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of that tree, he said, you shall surely die. Now, I love the picture that that paints, because what we see right there in the very beginning is we see the Lord standing between two trees. One was good and one was not good. Now, I know that only some of you are going to see that picture, but often in the Bible, the cross is re referred to as a tree. And you see the Lord between two trees giving an instruction to Adam. Well, the story goes that Adam disobeyed the command of God, and Adam ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in so doing, Adam brought sin upon himself and then upon the entire human race of descendants that would come after him. It was the fall. We call it the fall of man, and it happened when he fall, fell. It was original sin. But here's what God did. It says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 27, it says that the Lord, maybe it's 21, the Lord God made skins and that he clothed the man and his wife with the skins that he had made. And it's an early picture of the cross of Jesus Christ. God, in the presence of his creation, took an innocent lamb and he shed its blood right in front of Adam and Eve. They saw the substitution take place where the guilt of their sin and the punishment of their sin was placed upon an innocent lamb. 
And then the clothing of that lamb was then used to cover the exposed nakedness, the sinfulness, if you would, of Adam and Eve. And it's an amazing picture what God did because God took an innocent substitute and he covered their sin. He didn't reverse the effects of their sin. They were still now subject to a sin nature and they would ultimately die physically. But their sin was covered. Now, the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament book of Galatians chapter 3, he says this. He says that as many of us as are baptized into Christ, that we are now clothed in Christ. And so what God did with the lamb in the Garden of Eden in providing clothes for his creation, the person of Jesus being the innocent substitute, he provided a covering for us in our sin. We are now clothed in Jesus Christ. We still feel the effects of sin very truly and very definitely. But when God looks at us, he sees Jesus Christ because we are clothed in him. And so therefore, from the very beginning, God was revealing through Adam and Eve, even in their fall, that he was going to provide a way, he did provide a way for sin to be completely covered. That means that when God sees you and me, he does not see us according to our sin, neither the past, present, or future sin. If we're in Christ, we're clothed in Christ, and therefore God sees us in that innocent, redeemed situation. It's an amazing picture. Well, as the redemptive story of God unfolded, God called a man whose name was Abram, and then as he got to know God, God changed his name to Abraham. And Abraham was called by God. God revealed himself to Abraham. God spoke to Abraham, and there was a relationship that developed between the two. Abraham trusted in the Lord, and the Lord loved Abraham. And after 50 years of fellowship, walking together between Abraham and God, God asked Abraham for an act of worship that was extremely costly. God said to Abraham, he said, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, that you love, and I want you to take him to a mountain that I'm going to talk to you about, tell you about, and I want you to offer him there as a sacrifice for me. Now that's a huge ask, and it almost seems contrary to the nature of God. And Abraham was certainly challenged by that. It was his only son, and he loved him. But God had a message for Abraham, and God was doing something, and Abraham trusted God, so Abraham obeyed God. So Abraham took his one and only son, and he put him on a donkey. And he took two servants with him, and they went to Mount Moriah, which happens to be the exact mountain where Jesus Christ would be crucified hundreds of years later on. And when they arrived, the two servants stayed behind because the son had to go alone. And Father Abraham put the wood for the sacrifice on the back of his son Isaac, and the son carried the wood for the sacrifice up the hill. When they reached the top, the father, not a lamb, but his son, he fastened his son to the wood on the altar of the burnt offering. And the son himself submitted to the actions of the father in trust, not even fully knowing what was going on. Well, Abraham, wanting to obey, he raised the knife over his son And in the moment before he fulfilled his obedience, God stopped him and said, wait, I don't really want you to sacrifice him. That wasn't the plan all along. God didn't want to condone human sacrifice. He said, but turn around and look behind you. And Abraham turned around and behind him, he saw a ram, which is a male lamb of the first year with its horns caught in the thicket of thorns. There was a crown of thorns on this year-old ram behind Abraham, and God said, offer that instead of your son. 
And so Abraham took that ram and he offered it in place of his son. And Abraham understood the message that God was seeking to convey to him. God was communicating to Abraham what he would do with his only son that he loved hundreds and hundreds of years later in the same place. And we know that Abraham got the picture because Abraham said, in the mountain of the Lord, this mountain, it shall be seen. This is what God is going to do to display his love to a fallen world. He's going to give his only begotten son. But you know, that picture tells us something about the cross that maybe we don't pick up in the story as we read it in the Gospels, and that's this. It's that God provided what God asked for. See, God asked Abraham for a sacrifice that was extremely costly, probably a sacrifice that you and I, we probably wouldn't be able to give. At least I know I probably wouldn't, in all honesty. But God didn't actually want Isaac dead, but God was showing Abraham, I am going to provide what I require of you. What does God require of us? Jesus said that if we keep the whole law and yet we stumble in one point, then we're guilty of breaking the entirety of the law. Jesus said, be perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect. The standard of God to worship God truly It requires perfection. That's what God asks. The problem is that none of us, no human being that has ever lived, not even Adam, could keep that standard. We've all fallen short of it. None of us can worship God in the way that he requires to be worshiped. But God provided for himself that which he required on our behalf. He did it in the person of his son, Jesus, who did live the perfect life, But then he was the ram caught in the thicket with the crown of thorns who was offered in our place. But you know what is so amazing about that story? Is that God accepted Abraham's worship in that he was willing, even if he was unable to or didn't have to ultimately go through with the sacrifice. And I love that about our God, is that he receives our intention even when we fall short. Do you have people in your life that no matter what you do, it's not good enough? That you can put your best effort into what you're doing. You can try as hard as you can, and somehow there's always some criticism, or they see the error or the mistake in what you did, and they've got to make sure that you know that they saw it. How do you feel when people do that to you? I know how I feel. But are there also people in your life that they see your intention and they see what's behind, they see the good motivation and and they're, they're, they're truly grateful and they respond with love for what you do. I want you to know tonight that that's the way that God looks at you. That when you bring your worship as imperfect as it is, when you bring your life to him as imperfect as it is, even right now, the things that you're struggling with, I want you to know that in that you're willing, that you're even trying God looks at that and he receives it as worship because he provided what he asked for in the person of his son. That sets us free. It's an amazing picture of the cross. Well, the redemptive story of God went on and God raised up a nation through the descendants of Abraham and they were brought to Egypt by providence in the turn of events. And God raised up a deliverer whose name was Moses, who would set God's people free from the slavery that they were under, under the Pharaoh's bondage. And God instituted the Passover, which in and of itself was a picture of the cross. God said, when I see the blood on the doorposts and the lintel, the top and the bottom of the door, I will pass over you the shape of a cross in blood sparing them from death, ultimately being the foundation of, his, of their freedom. That's a story for another Good Friday. But shortly after that, when Israel was liberated from that bondage in Egypt, they were in a very weakened and vulnerable state. Not only had they known the bondage of slavery for all of the years that they were in Egypt, but now they were even stripped of their familiarity. They were slaves, but at least they knew what they were, where they were. Now they were wandering in a wilderness. They were hungry. They were thirsty. They were vulnerable. And all of a sudden, they were attacked. 
one of the nations got nervous seeing such a great multitude of people walking in the vicinity of their borders. And so they decided that they would try to wipe out this nation. It was a nation called the Amalekites. And what they did is that they came behind the camp and they began to kill the people that were at the rear of it. That is the weakest. Now that's the most cowardly thing that you can do if you're trying to provoke a nation. I mean, think about it. Who's in the back of the pack? That's the kids. That's the people that are sick. That's the elderly. That's the people that are too weak to keep up in the front of the pack. I mean, if you really think about it, when you kill the weakest of a nation, you're actually strengthening the nation because now they don't have to look after those weak. What that tells us is that the Amalekites, they weren't nervous about their land. They were just hateful towards the people of God. They just wanted to spite them. They, were, they weren't interested in protecting themselves. It was cowardly. It was awful. It was wicked what they did. Well, Israel found themselves now in a battle that they didn't choose. I tell my kids all the time that if you're ever in a place and you're minding your own business and somebody hits you or trips you or pushes you, you didn't ask for it, but now you're in a conflict. You didn't ask for the conflict, but you have to deal with the conflict. And that was Israel. Now they were in a battle that they didn't choose. Well, Moses was old. He was the word. He was the lawgiver. And so Moses went up into a high hill with Aaron and her, two of his assistants, his helpers. And Joshua, who was the commander of the fighting men, he went down into the valley to fight against Amalek, the Amalekites, and their troops. And Moses, up on the hill, he raised his hands in intercessory prayer for Joshua and the fighting men down below. And what happened is that whenever Moses' hands were raised, Joshua and the children of Israel prevailed over Amalek. But Moses' hands would grow weary, and as he would lower them to rest, he would notice that Amalek would push back, and Joshua and the troops would give up ground. And so as he would raise his hands, they would win. As he would grow weary, they would begin to lose and draw back. Well, they saw and recognized the pattern, so what they did is they propped Aaron under one of Moses' arms and her under the other of Aaron's arms, and they held them up until Joshua prevailed in the battle. And he did prevail ultimately in the battle. But here's what that tells us. It tells us that the victory that Joshua and the children of Israel obtained that day had nothing to do with strategy or skill or strength. It had everything to do with the intercession of three men on a hill and the man in the middle had his hands raised. I don't know if you can see the picture that was painted there that day, but Joshua, who was fighting down in the valley, being overcome at times by an enemy that he didn't choose, it wasn't up to him, his strength, his skill, his strategy to try to win that battle. It was in looking to the man on the hill with his hands raised. That's where the victory would come. And I wonder tonight if there aren't some of you that right now you find yourselves in the middle of a battle that you didn't choose. I mean, maybe you were just minding your own business and going through your life and all of a sudden laziness slapped you in the backside. And you've been having a battle with laziness for a long time in your life. Or, or maybe there's some other issue. There's an addiction in your life. And, and maybe you made a bad choice, but you feel now you're in a place where that enemy chose you more than you chose it. And you're in a battle that you don't know how to win. Maybe at some point in your life, you were diagnosed with a couple of letters that you didn't even know at the time what they meant. OCD or ADD or PTSD or LGBTQ or XYZ LMNOPQRSTUV or whatever it might be, but you might have a battle that you didn't choose that you're fighting right now. Here's what I want you to know, that because of the cross of Jesus Christ, it is not by might, it is not by power, it isn't by strength, it isn't by your skill, it isn't by your strategy that you will win the battle. You know where you'll win it? You'll win it as you look to the one who spread out his arms on the top of a hill and took your place. The victory belongs to the Lord. And you know what? His arms were stretched out on the cross and his arms are stretched out still. 
Because the Bible says that he ever lives to make intercession for you and for me. The cross provides victory in the battles that we fight, that we didn't even choose. We're down here in the valley on earth, and the Lord is the one who fights our battles, but it's because of his cross that we can win. You know, it wasn't long after the the fight with Amalek that the nation began to gain strength. And as they moved through the wilderness and ultimately towards the time that they would go into the plan that God had for them, there was another king who was genuinely nervous about the progress that these Israelites were making. And he knew that he couldn't defeat them by force. He had seen what happened to Egypt. He saw what happened to Amalek. But he thought to himself, if I can get God on my side, then I can overthrow them before they have a chance to become a threat to me. And so this king of Moab, his name was Balak. And what he did is he hired a prophet whose name was Balaam, a man who had authority with God, and it seemed that God listened when Balaam spoke. And so Balak took Balaam, and they went up into an exceedingly high mountain where they would be able to see the entire camp of the children of Israel. And Balak told Balaam to pronounce a curse from God on the people that were down there in the valley. Now Moses, when he had heard from God the instructions of how they were to situate, God was very clear how he wanted the people encamped. He wanted the tabernacle in the center, which represented the presence of God, the person of God, that he was in their midst. And then he wanted three tribes on their east, three tribes on their north, three tribes on their south, and three tribes to the west. And the numbers of those families that were camped are actually recorded in Scripture. For those of you number nerds, the accountants, I'm one of them. That's why I feel liberty to say that. There was 186,000 families on the east side. There was about 150,000 families each on the east and west. I'm sorry, the north and the south. And on the west side, there was only 108,000. I say that because when Balak and Balaam looked down on the camp of Israel, I want you to see what they saw. They saw this. I can hear you at home saying, ooh, ah. That's right. It was in the perfect shape of a cross. God had his people encamped in a cross, and they didn't even know it. They didn't know what it was, and they didn't know what it represented. But here's the incredible thing that happened that when Balaam stood on the precipice of that cliff and sought to pronounce a curse against the people of God, he opened his mouth to curse, but only blessing came out. And it happened three times. Balak, the king of Moab, was so angry at Balaam that he said, what are you doing? I hired you to curse them, and these three times you've blessed them. And Balaam looked back at him, And he said, look, I cannot curse whom God has blessed. God's blessed him. What can I do? And here's what I want you to understand. Is that part of what the cross of Jesus Christ means to you and me is that we are no longer not only under the original curse, but we are not under any curse. The Bible says in the New Testament book of Galatians, chapter 3, it says that Jesus became a curse for us. You'll see the exact text of it go up on the screen right now, that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. We are no longer cursed. And then it goes on to say that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through faith in Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. In other words, because of what Jesus did on the cross, every curse has been broken. That means that there's no curse on your life right now if you're in the cross of Jesus Christ. If you're camped in that place where you belong to him, then it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what generations of your ancestors have done in times past that you now apparently are struggling. None of that matters. Satan can't curse you. Man can't curse you. Heaven or hell can't curse you if you're in the cross of Christ. He bore the curse so that we could be set free. You know, right after 
the children of Israel walked on from that place where they were blessed instead of cursed by Moab, a plague fell upon the camp. It tells us that fiery serpents came in among them. It wasn't a curse. It was a consequence. They were complaining. They were murmuring. And a curse, a plague came upon them. And these snakes were biting some of the people and they were growing sick and they were dying. And so they were scared. They were afraid. And some of the people actually were passing away. And Moses went into God and he said, God, what is this and what am I to do about it? And God gave Moses a very specific and kind of confusing instruction. He said, Moses, I want you to take brass. And I want you to take the brass and you are going to forge a bronze serpent, a serpent out of bronze. And then I want you to fasten it to a pole and you're going to lift up this pole. You're going to erect this pole in the middle of the camp. And then you're going to direct the people that if any of them are bitten by one of these serpents and they come down with the plague, then they are to simply look in the direction of the serpent fastened to the pole. And if they look at the serpent, they will live. It's a short passage and it seems really unbelievable when you think about what it was that they were asked to do. And really, there's no science to back up the situation. But Jesus brought up that story in the New Testament in a conversation that he was having with a Pharisee whose name was Nicodemus. And he explains to us exactly what that whole episode was all about. See, Nicodemus was spiritually dead, but he was intrigued by what he saw in the person of Jesus. And Jesus was trying to explain to him how he could be in a right relationship with God and how he could ultimately one day go to heaven. And Nicodemus wasn't understanding the things that Jesus was saying. He was spiritually dead, and Jesus was trying to explain spiritual things. And so Jesus said this. It's John chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. I'm going to read it to you. Jesus' explanation to Nicodemus, he said that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, a reference to the cross of Jesus Christ, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. See, Jesus was explaining there that that serpent that Moses lifted up, that unscientific solution to a very real scientific problem, that it was a spiritual thing that represented what Jesus himself would do in being lifted up upon the cross. Now, why a serpent? Because a serpent represents both the curse of Satan and also the plague that they were dealing with presently. And what Jesus was illustrating is that he himself would become the very thing that they needed to be saved from And that would be crucified upon the cross. The enemy would be crucified. Jesus, the enemy, in that instance. How does that work? Paul said this, the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He said that he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God even in him. See, Jesus became as the serpent himself when he was on the cross. The Bible says that the Lord laid on him, the iniquities of us all, and that by his stripes we are healed. What's the point? The point is this, is that the cross of Christ not only provides forgiveness of sin, but it's through the cross that we receive healing for the infirmities and the problems that we have. Not just the physical things, and maybe you're going through physical sickness right now. I want you to know that the cross of Jesus Christ has provided for healing if it's God's will, but not just physically. There's a mental healing. There's a spiritual healing. There's an emotional healing that God provides as we look to him. And you say, well, how can it be that just by looking to Jesus on the cross, I can be healed of something that's physically wrong with me? Well, listen, it's faith. It's a spiritual thing. It's what Jesus was trying to explain to Nicodemus. 
And it happens when we believe. And you know why it works? It works because God says it works. And that's why. There's no science behind it. It's a law of faith. And God says to believe, to look to him, to trust in him, that's where healing happens. I want to give you one more picture as we prepare for communion. And if you have your uh, supplies to take communion tonight, I would ask that you would get them ready at this time. Because it was at the end of Jesus' ministry, and he was there in the upper room with his disciples. It was the last Passover. And it tells us that they were there, and Jesus said to them, he said, with great desire have I desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. You know, I, I love Jesus, his strength. Because I think the last thing that I would be thinking about uh, moments before I was about to go through what he went through, uh, I don't think I would have been thinking about how much I want to hang out with my friends. I probably would have wanted to just retire alone. In fact, if you had just seen me pacing up and down the hallway just before this service, uh, I can't imagine what Jesus was about to go through all those years ago at this very same time. And yet he wanted to be with his disciples. And it was during that Passover feast that he, he took the, the middle loaf of bread. There were three loaves of bread in the Passover feast. There was the top, the center, and the bottom. They didn't know this, but it represented the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And it was that second loaf that you would break. And as Jesus took that, he would be the, the master of the feast. Jesus took that middle loaf, representing himself, and he broke it. And he gave commentary to his disciples about the true meaning of what that Passover represented. He said to them, he said, take this bread. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. For all of those years that they had been keeping that Passover and breaking that middle loaf and passing it around the table and eating it. And now to hear the son of God say that that loaf of bread represented the flesh of his body that was about to be broken for them. And then he gave it to them but his instruction was not that they should possess it, but that they should receive it. There's a difference between possessing something and receiving something. To possess it is to simply have it with you and alongside. But to receive it, you're bringing it inside of you. It's internalized. You're digesting it and it's becoming one with you. You're receiving of its nutritional value and everything that it is is becoming a part of what you are. And what Jesus was saying to them is he's saying, listen, what's about to take place as I go to this cross is that my body is going to be broken so that you can receive me inside. See, in order for it to do us any good, it has to be digested. Jesus has to become one with us on the inside. And in order for him to be digested, he first had to be broken. And so Jesus on the cross gave himself for us, but he also gave himself to us, which is why he took that bread and he broke it there in their presence. And he said, take this bread and eat of it. For this is the bread of the body, which is broken for the forgiveness of your sins. And then he offered it to them that they might receive of it. They might receive of him the forgiveness of their sins. Why don't we do that right now together? Let's take a moment and just receive of the body and think about what Jesus did for us on the cross. one with you. It tells us that after supper, it says he took the cup. Now, again, there were four cups of wine that they would use as part of the Passover feast. And the cup that they would take after supper was the third cup, and it represented the cup of redemption. And Jesus held up that cup before him, and he said to them, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the remission or for the forgiveness of your sins. You know, the Bible tells us that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And the blood of Jesus was the most precious substance that ever existed on the planet because it's the only blood that was ever untainted by sin. Because Jesus was virgin born, and because Jesus lived a sinless life, Jesus' blood was untainted 
and it could not be defiled. That's why Jesus could touch lepers. That's why Jesus could go into a company of sick folk and not have to wear a mask or PPE. He couldn't be tainted. It was impossible for him. His blood was perfectly pure. And what Jesus did on that night is he held up the cup and he passed it around to his disciples and he freely gave the most precious substance in all the world. It was literally eternal life. And he offered it to his disciples for them to partake of it, the purity of his blood having the power and the ability to purify them from all of their sins. And he offered them the cup of his blood that night, and he allowed them to partake of it. Now what they didn't know, what they didn't realize, is that in just a few short hours there would be another cup that Jesus would receive that he didn't necessarily want to take. Remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane? And he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And you say, well, what cup was it that was being handed to Jesus when he was in the garden? Do you know what it was? It was the cup of my blood. It was the cup of my life. It was all of the guilt and all of the stain and all of the defilement and the shame of my sin. See, it wasn't enough just for Jesus to give up the cup of his life, he had to receive a cup in the same. There had to be substitution. And so what Jesus earned with a perfect life, he gave up freely as a gift to those who didn't deserve it. And in exchange, he willingly took the cup that was in front of us and he drank it, the Bible says, all the way down to the dregs. The Bible says that he, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. That means that it was his pleasure to take our place. But it says that he despised the shame. He knew what it would cost him. And what that tells you and I tonight is we remember the blood. As we remember what Jesus gave up, the blood that was spilled out upon the cross, that was freely given to us. He gives us this cup and he says, take it and do this in remembrance of me. Remember what it is that I did for you. Remember what this blood cost. Remember what it is worth. Remember what it will do. And partake of it in the joy of your salvation. Knowing what I provided for you. Knowing that it's freely given. The cross of Jesus is the most valuable, most precious thing that we could ever have as believers. Not only is it our redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, the substitution that we didn't deserve, that God traded places with us. But it's the provision of God fulfilling on our behalf what he asks of us to do that we never could. It's the promise of protection and progress and victory in the battles that choose us that we couldn't face ourselves. It's the guarantee that the blessing of God is upon our lives, that it will overtake us and that no weapon formed against us will prosper. No curse can overcome us because of the blood and what Jesus did on the cross. And the blood of Jesus Christ represents the healing that every one of us needs. The defilement of our roots and the things that they've been set in to be purified and cleansed so that the life of God and the joy of God can come back into us again. And in remembrance of what he did almost 2,000 years ago on the eve of, well, this very night, Good Friday, he gave his life, his cup for you and I. Church body, let's partake together as a family of God and what Jesus gave to us freely. In the cross of Jesus, God provided the means of our very purpose. We were made for relationship with him, and he provided the greatest need that we had, which was redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. And that's why Good Friday is good. That's why we celebrate what we celebrate tonight. And tonight, we're going to close our service right now, and we're going to do something just maybe a touch different than what we normally do. I want to ask you guys in your houses right now, you don't have to change your posture if you're seated or if you're kneeling or if you're standing, whatever you're doing. But what I would ask you to do is I would just ask you right where you are, maybe to just raise your hands. And what we're going to do right now is we're going to just sing a song over you. It's a song of blessing. It's a new song, but the words of it come right out of the Bible. And they communicate very clearly the heart of God that he has towards you tonight. And I pray that as we just sing this over, that you just receive it, that you receive God's favor and God's blessing and God's promise in your life, and that in every way your heart is softened and prepared 
for this weekend and what it represents. And I'm praying that this is the most blessed resurrection season, weekend of your life and that you see Jesus in a way that you never did. And so just let us sing the song over you as we close our service. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.